Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Sunday, February 1st, 2009, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. We are recording this podcast during the 38th Critical Care Congress here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our guest today is Dr. John McNeilis. Dr. McNeilis is an associate professor of surgery at Stony Brook uh, Medical Center in Stony Brook, New York, and he's the director of surgical critical care at Winthrop University Hospital in Mineola, New York. Thank you so much, John, for spending some time today. Thank you very much, Rich. Thank you for having me. Uh, The focus of this podcast is really as part two of our podcast focused on the Critical Care Leadership Network, which is sponsored by the Greater New York Hospital Association and the United Hospital Fund. And we're focusing on some of the positive outcomes of a regional critical care initiative, what worked, what didn't work, and uh, what kinds of things can be done to improve these kinds of outcomes from a critical care perspective at the regional level. And uh, Dr. McNeilis, I I always enjoy giving uh, my guests an opportunity to talk for a couple minutes about themselves, their background, how they ended up in critical care. um, And if you could do that, that would be terrific. Well, thank you very much, Rich. Uh, I'm a surgeon by training. Uh, I trained up at uh, Westchester Valhalla. I graduated from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Uh, I did my surgical residency, as I said, at at Valhalla and New York Medical College. Uh, I did a critical care fellowship at, uh, in Newark, New Jersey, and then uh, proceeded to work 15 years at first LIJ and then North Shore LIJ after the merger, where I rose up through the ranks, eventually becoming a division chief of trauma critical care. I moved over to Winthrop about a year and a half ago as vice chair of surgery as well as director of trauma and surgical critical care. Uh, and recently got to, and also got promoted to associate professor at uh, Stony Brook. And uh, so you're a, because I always, uh, sometimes I get confused about this, but you are a critical care surgeon and you're a trauma surgeon. Is that right? Correct. The two actually go together. Uh, the boards and uh, the trauma fellowships do include, most include surgical critical care. There are a few isolated surgical critical care fellowships. And generally to get certified in trauma, it is, it's actually surgical critical care certification. Um, and... Um, when we spoke with Dr. Kvetin as part of the previous podcast, he spent a lot of time focusing in on the background of the Critical Care Leadership Network. And we have you here today because you are the lead author on two uh, poster presentation, abstract presentations here at the Critical Care Congress. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about those uh, for the next few minutes as the bulk of the podcast. And just for the listeners, the topic on one is throughput uh, of critical care in the in the metro New York City area, and the other was a fascinating one focused on advanced directives. So if you'd like to take it from there, that'd be that'd Yeah. Be um, first, I, I guess Dr. Quentin went into in great detail the background, and this, this um, the, the, great, the Critical Care Leadership Network of Greater New York is really a, a unique th- a, a unique thing in, in, the, um, in the New York area. Several attempts had been um, taken to, under, to undertake uh, this in the past, uh, however, they sort of uh, fell apart under the weight or people lost interest. Uh, Greater New York and the United uh, Hospital Fund provided the framework um, 
to do this. And I think Dr. Fenton went into the various programs that we sponsored through the 2007 and 2008 year, and one of which we did together, one abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, as well as surgical critical care, burns, hypothermia, and two or three different ultrasound courses. So it, is, it has really been a major educational initiative, if nothing else. One of the projects of the Critical Care Leadership Network uh, was a snapshot survey. And this is interesting. It was, um, we, we had a lot of debate, and obviously Dr. Fenton went into the, the number of uh, <clears throat> physicians and nurses that were part of this initial steering committee. And after much debate, we decided that we were going to do a survey in a 24-hour window. And the first one we did was uh, on March 15th, the Ides of March in 2007. And uh, what we did was <clears throat> we uh, gave a questionnaire. And uh, this we actually had done a couple pilot runs before this. We gave a questionnaire to the nurses, uh, nursing directors, and the unit directors and just asked them to track multiple, multiple variables. I mean, I could probably t didn't bring the actual questionnaire, but we could talk for about two. I would probably bore everyone to death two hours seeing exactly what we asked them. But... But there was much debate, I remember at the time, trying to figure out, um, you know, if we're going to take a snapshot for a day, A, looking at the previous attempts at these kinds of things yes. and figuring out what was reasonable and, and what would be the best question to ask. Oh, yeah, they were almost fist fighting over it. I mean, <laughs> as you recall, the debate was quite, was quite heated. But finally, we hit on the 24-hour survey, actually had two trial runs, which we did at, at, at the hospitals of the steering committees. But anyway, on the Ides of March in 2007, uh, we did our first uh, greater, we did our first uh, ICU survey. Now, what's the purpose of it? Well, the purpose was twofold. One, to find out what the needs are, both educational and resource. Because don't forget, Greater New York is a consortium of hospitals. So their concern, you know, education is key, patient safety. This was undertaken by the Division of Patient Safety. But at the same time, they need to serve the needs of the hospital. So they needed to ask the question, what are the needs? Um, they needed to ask some fundamental questions like, well, how are we utilizing our resources? What is our throughput? Uh, where the bottlenecks might where be the in, bottlenecks in critical are. care. And in light of uh, the events of September 11, 2001, we always had this nagging uh, question of what was our surge capacity? If there was going to be another disaster, how would we respond? Um, just, and Richard, you recall back September 11th, we did okay, but... The hospitals were stretched, stressed initially. Uh, unfortunately, they, we weren't challenged for, obviously, for some very tragic reasons. We didn't have many uh, injured parties during that time. Um, but uh, we wanted to see how we could handle such a, uh, um, such a situation should it ever occur. So anyway, we, we, did it, we, we distributed these uh, questionnaires, and we got a very good response, actually. One of your abstracts was focused using the data from this 24-hour snapshot looking in the metropolitan New York City area on critical care throughput, focusing in on one particular 24-hour period. And what were some of the high points? Right. Well, first we had a great response. So at 69 hospitals comprising 147 units and almost 2,000 patients uh, responded. And again, it was during a 24-hour period. And we tracked all activity in and out of that unit. We tracked uh, patients coming in. And we track patients being discharged. Uh, we track patients waiting beds. We track patients who are outside the ICUs waiting to come into the unit. And in addition, what we found in terms of that was we found that um, we had a, a problem. We had an issue. We had um, the bottlenecks 
um, in terms of getting patients into most critical care settings and out. And the problem, the main bottleneck seemed to lie in patients waiting lower acuity of care, which probably most unit directors would agree is, is a major problem. So you've got a patient who is doing okay in your unit. You, you would like the patient to leave, but there's just not, not a space for that patient to go, no matter how many times you call the, the administrator or the admissions office, right? Right, correct. And it, it, to an extent, it dispelled a misconception that, um, that one of the barriers to throughput was that we were over-doctoring the patients in the ICU. Far from it. We were actually, uh, as far as we could tell, based on some of our data in the 6N hospitals, we were actually practicing more or less evidence-based um, ICU care, but then we would finish, and we'd essentially patient would be discharged from the unit, and then would be sitting there. Now, that varied. There were some hospitals that, that actually had very good throughput, uh, and that was probably a function of staffing on the floor and in the step-down units that allowed those patients to be moved out. Were there any other um, surprises from your perspective when you were putting together this, this uh, abstract poster session uh, in terms of the uh, results? What I was surprised was was the wide variance between the units. I mean, I expected some degree. I didn't, when we actually looked at the data, we didn't realize how different the practice patterns were. Um, We were a little disappointed at the number of hospitals that did not incorporate any degree of electronic medical records. Now, I don't think there are, I'm sure some of your listeners probably live in the uh, Wonderland utopian Wonderland of uh, total EMR, uh, we don't, but we all have varying degrees, be it CPOE, uh, be it electronic lab retrieval, which is a form of you know of electronic of, uh, electronic records. But we found that uh, I won't say the number, but we found a very high percentage had nothing, and they were still very very much paper based. One of the I was looking at your poster this morning, and one of the things I was confused about then, and I remain confused about, was I thought one of the questions you were asked, and, and please correct me if I got this wrong, but was what percentage of your units had 24-hour critical care attendings or board certified? And A, I thought the number was incredibly high, and B, the number varied tremendously from one year to the next. I remember looking at your poster. Yeah, there was more in 2008 than there were in 2007. Right. That co- there was there was again there was debate about that and I believe that there was a misconception. You mean in terms of the question? Yes, there were there were actually two. There, there should have been two components to that question. The question was how many have twenty four seven availability and how many have twenty four seven on site presence. See. And they're okay. two very different questions. And we we even though in the in the Critical care, even the critical care leadership network, we had issues with that. There okay. was debate back and forth. Um, I think that what had happened was the reason the numbers went up with 2000, 2000, uh, between 2007 and 2008, because several of our key hospitals did actually go to 24-7 in, in, in-house attendings. Now, as you know, with LeapFrog, all you need is to have intensivists, right. uh, board-certified intensivists. They don't have to be in-house. They just need to be there. And it's been difficult to show in the literature to the extent that's been studied, that, that making that last step to 24-7 really changes outcomes from what my reading of the literature. No, there's, there's not, right? there is not anything that clearly shows that in-house attendings are superior to attending availability. Right. Um, and actually, that's we're going to talk about that at the end of the podcast with some of your recent work, so we'll do that. Um, is it all right if I move on to the your other sure. poster where sure. um, another one published 
uh, where your first author focused on advanced directives, again, from this uh, 24-hour New York City critical care snapshot. Correct. Um, we wanted to look at, again, there was, there, was a, there was a whole wealth of data that was derived, and we just asked ourselves a simple question. You know, what was, uh, what are advanced directives being utilized in ICU? And uh, we, our hypothesis, if you want to know, was that they were underutilized. And, well, why is this important? I mean, who cares? Well, you do, because anyone who's taking care of a critically ill patient um, understands that issues do emerge during the care of this patient. Uh, often patients that, uh, sadly, that come in awake and alert do not remain that way. And hence, it is critical that some degree, be it a healthcare proxy, be it the patient's own written wishes, uh, I think it's critical that this be ascertained before a patient enters the critical care arena. Um, uh, preferably, the, the best point is probably on, on entry into the hospital uh, because, uh, for the most part, you know, patients. Uh, Many of the patients who subsequently become critically ill are still in a, in a position where they can make these decisions. Uh, what we found in both years, in 2007 and 2008, is that uh, there was an underutilization, although there was an improvement between 2007, 2000, uh, between 2007 to 2008. We were um, getting the uh, advanced directives were being um, attained uh, greater frequency, especially in the hospital, and especially at time of admission. But still, it's not enough. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is there some particular advice that you would give to uh, another critical care physician or clinician that wanted to start up a similar initiative in another part of the country? Right. I, to, I, there were several things I would do. One, I would certainly partner with whatever your local counterpart is to Greater New York, your local hospital organization. They have most to gain and really are interested, very much interested in your work. Often these uh, these associations have directors of patient safety and will actually help you. One of the things that Greater New York and United Hospital Fund did for us is they provided an excellent framework. Uh, often, you know, physicians are very busy and they, they cannot actually do a lot of the um, a lot of the footwork that needs to be done with the society. There's an awful amount of work that, that needs to get done. Um, secondly, the hospital will provide some degree of direction. The third thing is I would certainly recommend to be as inclusive as you can. Remember, you're looking at all hospitals and all facilities where critical care is delivered. So throw a wide net. Try to get everybody. Try to get uh, the community-based physicians, those doctors who are maybe in, in some of the smaller hospitals who do even office-based critical care, the, you know, who do office-based critical care in pulmonary, office-based critical care in anesthesia, and bring them in as well. So the more people that have, have an interest, more people that have feel it's theirs, the more likely it is to be a sustainable entity, right? Yes, and, and I think that you have to realize what you want to do. I mean, this is just as much a quality patient safety project. So it's not so much about raising the bottom or raising the top, although you like to do that, but you want to raise the mean. You, you want to go. You want to raise the mean across the entire continuum. The last thing I wanted to do in the podcast was um, I saw one of your posters um, on a similar topic on uh, EICU or, or telemedicine, and you did a wonderful project looking at uh, a robotic presence in a surgical ICU. And if you could talk about that, would really, really be great. Right. It, that's um, 
one of my pet little projects, one of the problems that we are facing nationally is uh, there really are not enough critical care doctors and the demand is going up. I think it was actually Dr. Angus did a very nice uh, report to Congress back in 2007 where he projected the number, the need of doctors, and he, present, he projected the number of critical care uh, physicians that we have, and there was quite a shortfall. And in fact, it probably is worse because not all doctors who identify themselves as critical care doctors might actually be practicing critical care. So it's a significant shortfall. In the meantime, in the same time, we got an older, sicker population that needs to be attended to, and uh, there needs to. We have, you know, often have physicians assistants in, in the ICU at night, and we don't have the ability to actually be in the ICU twenty four hour, twenty four seven. Now, some institutions do, and that's great. That's the ideal, and that's to me, that's the way. Hopefully, it will, it should be, but it's it's not practical. Uh, to some institutions. So in order to extend physician coverage, uh, various uh, institutions have uh, developed some degree of remote presence technology, probably the most famous of which is VisiQ. Um, the other, on a more singular um, uh, level, is the presence of these rounding robots that are made by InTouch Health um, in, Santa, in Santa Barbara, California. And what this does is it actually allows you to interact with the patients. You're actually able to uh, uh, round through the ICU, face-to-face -face interaction with the uh, whoever your extender is. It could be an NP, it could be a resident, it could be a PA, as well as a nursing staff. And in smaller, even in, even in, in, in tertiary care centers where we don't have 24-7 presence, you know, we're, we're available 24-7, but at night we'll often check in by phone. Um, there's a big difference uh, between checking by phone and checking in by remote presence. I, I just want to interrupt and interject two questions. One is if you could talk about the story of how your institution went from not having this to having this. How did you pick this particular device? And the second thing that I thought was fascinating from looking at your poster is if you could describe um, how you interact with this at home. I know you have, you said, I think I got it, that there's one screen where you're looking at labs and then you've got like a joystick and a keyboard. So. Our, our institution uh, was involved in it. Actually, uh, it was an idea that I brought over from North Shore LIJ. Uh, North Shore LIJ had inc uh, incorporated some degree of uh, uh, remote rounding uh, robots, and I found that they were fascinating. When I came to the new hospital, um, I came into basically a new ICU, introduced the, the idea. Uh, one of the local hospitals had already gone to 24-7 in-house intensivists, uh, our particular surgical intensive care unit has physician extenders on at night, not residents. And I felt this added degree of communication was critical. Telephone rounds are fine, checking in by phone and availability, um, but I, I felt that that was needed. Now, the, R, the RP7, uh, we chose that because it was mobile as opposed to VisiQ, which is sort of, it's, VisiQ is great, but it, it's for sort of a different situation altogether. What, we, what I wanted was that ability to interact a little bit more mobility to move around. Um, and that's why we came up with that. We negotiated with them and we, we, we took, we, we leased out the RP7 robot. But you're, so you're, you're obviously able to convince the appropriate administrators to give you an, at least a trial run of this, right? Yeah. I, I think that the argument that was made was made on a cost basis. Um, the key with this is to increase three throughput. This, this goes back, harkens back to our, our, our first article, to our first, um, discussion where it, it does decrease throughput. In fact, in some of the studies that have come out in other ICUs, it decreases length of stay by uh, 
as much as 0.5 to one day. In our ICU, during the limited time period, we found it did decrease length of stay by almost half a day. We haven't, we didn't really publicize that um, because the interval was too short. We want to see what it does over a one to two year period. What we did find, interestingly, was that it increased communication, you know, it, it increased enhanced communication between the intensivist who was at home and the extender. Now, the way we did it was, uh, the way we conducted the study was we had specific timed rounds at 10 p.m., uh, and then we randomized those rounds into telephone, which is the way we'd always been doing it, and, or the RP7. And what we found was greater user, user satisfaction. You had the ability to interact with the patients. More importantly, we actually made more interventions with the um, with the robot, the reasons we're able to evaluate. You mean things patient. like fluid bolses or changing changing meds, and things, meds? You know, changing meds, uh, um, a- adding you know, adding various uh, you know. Sometimes we'll be adding an inotrope, decreasing an inotrope. Mostly, it would be in terms of vent settings. And the other things that we would do sometimes with this ability to visualize a patient, uh, we often I, I would often find myself. Um, slowing the sedative, tapering the sedatives sedatives much earlier. What's it like from your perspective at home doing this? You're you're sort of driving around the ICU kind of thing? Oh, yeah. You you asked before how you work. Well, we work it off a laptop. You work it off a computer. Uh, It can be be accessed. Your computer has to be fitted, but it's very easy to do. And you log on to your computer. I have a laptop that's specifically dedicated for this. So... And uh, they give you a little joystick. You plug it in, and you, it's actually very much like playing a video game. And like a video game, and it's it's you you become lost in it. You actually, yeah, uh, uh, you, you actually have so to. So you feel, feel like, like you're there. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And there's a camera, so you're they're seeing you, and you're seeing them. There's a camera that they see you, and you can see them. Now you can shut off the camera uh, if you if you um, if you don't want them to see you, or what I've often done too is I've switched to images. Like if I wanted to explain something, I'll find an image of, say, a disease process or an x-ray, and I'll put the image uh, of the disease process on the screen so the patient will have the ability to see that. Huh. Or, um, or sometimes if they don't want to see me, I, one time I, I put a picture of Brad Pitt on. Because <laughs> they didn't want to look at my face, so I put Brad Pitt and on. And so what will happen? The, the physician's assistant and the nurses will come up to the robot and start talking to you? Oh, the robot goes to them. Okay. The robot, it's um, it's uh, perfectly mo- it's mobile. So with a joystick, you're controlling the head movements. Mm-hmm. You are oh, controlling really? back and forward, sideways. It's got sensors to let you know when people are coming up behind you because people always like to come up behind it and like grab the robot, but I can see them coming behind. Um, the it has uh, it has an attachment that allows you to attach a stethoscope, so I can listen to heart sounds. Uh, I can zoom in on the optics. So if I'm standing, say, at the foot of the bed or actually outside the room and I want to better look at the monitor, I can zoom up at the monitor. And you talk about fluid boluses. Well, often what, what I'll do is I'll look, you know, when you're, on te- when you're doing telephone rounds, then, you know, the person on the other end may forget to tell you something, may right, forget to right. tell you that the urine output's been 20 cc's for the last two hours. But with the robot, we can zoom in. I can actually zoom right down to the bag or... Zoom wow. right up to the to the to the to readings. I can even zoom in on the uh, uh, on the flow sheet. So when I do that, I said, hey, "Listen, we need to do something." Um, the patients love it. He said, "Well, does it freak out the patients?" I said, "No, the patient the the feedback." And we didn't put this on the poster uh, because it's kind of unscientific. But but the feedback that we got from patients and fa- uh, and families and on the things like the Prescani was uniformly positive. We did have one funny incident 
where uh, the patient, you know, sort of in that state, ICU state, getting getting better, but maybe not 100% there. Went and visited him. He invited me in to watch the basketball game with with him, asked me if I wanted something to eat and all that. And all I, through the robot. With the robot, yeah. And then I rolled out. Next day, his attending comes in. And the uh, attending comes out of his room, shaking his head and says, you know, we got we to gotta up the Haldol here, Mr. Jones. He's not doing it. I go, why? He says, well, he said the man from Mars visited him last night. I go, wow, that would be me. <laughs> Has there been any, um, any, any pushback or negatives from this? I mean, it sounds like a very, very positive thing in terms of truly extending your ability to, to have a presence in the unit. Like any, any technology, there's always a bit of pushback. Um, you know, there's, there's always skepticism. You know, one of the first questions that I was asked was, whose job is this going to replace? And I'm like, what's well, going to replace nobody's job? Uh, you know, we're not we're not looking to replace anyone. I was asked by a nurse who was very wary of it. Uh, a few people questioned, you know, the necessity of it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that our, our data, or at least our preliminary data, show that it is an added benefit and it is a possible uh, solution. Now you say, well, is it better than having a 24-hour, 24-7 intensivist? From a quality point of view, if you have a trained, obviously we assume you have a trained, board-certified person on staff. No, I would think you'd rather have that board-certified person on staff. Where would it have an advantage over the board-certified uh, physician? In costs. Uh, well, yeah, and as you pointed it out, with you're not use, you're comparing this with the same number of people. You're saying this compared with telephone triage, and I think from what you've described and. I want to make it clear that from your perspective, you feel like you have a better understanding of what's going on in the unit. Is that a fair statement? Oh, unquestionably. Oh, okay. Unquestionably. You, you can, you know, as soon as the, as soon as the thing starts moving, you're, you're there. Right. And I think anyone who's ever been, what I do with the skeptics is uh, I take them down to, my, to the office, the surgery office. I hook up the, uh, the computer or I hook up the uh, computer, log on to the robot, and then let them play around with it. Now they they actually the uh, there's actually a training robot too that I can log into if they don't want to if they're embarrassed to be seen on us okay you don't have to be embarrassed we'll, we'll take we'll, we'll we'll log in to Santa Barbara California and they have and, a place yeah and you can just drive around the the the, uh, the simulated room and then after a couple sessions they're not doubters anymore well anyway uh, John this has really been terrific I could talk with you for another couple of hours but I guess we'll we'll end it there let people uh, call you or maybe we'll put your email address on if sure. they have further questions about this we've had a tremendous opportunity today to speak with Dr. John McNeilis Dr. McNeilis is the director of surgical critical care at Winthrop University Hospital in Mineola thanks so much for joining us oh thank you very much Rich this concludes our podcast for Sunday February 1st 2009 for the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. 
adultcareboards.org. The best way to make sure you are prepared for the critical care boards is by attending the adult and pediatric multiprofessional review courses, MCCRC, at the Society's Critical Care Academy. Critical Care Academy will be held at the historic Hilton San Francisco in California from July 12th to 18th, 2009. Critical Care Academy is designed for practitioners who are preparing for the critical care subspecialty exams, as well as those seeking review of and updates on critical care. Critical Care Academy also will feature the American Board of Internal Medicine, ABIM, Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process, SEP, Module Review as a Pre-Course. Learn more at www.sccm.org.